Matthew chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God. Karis, thanks for reading. Just over a week ago, the head of the Wagner private army, Yevgeny Prigozhin, broadcast an extraordinary challenge to President Putin. And he started the long journey towards Moscow. Maybe you were um, glued to the news updates uh, as, um, as they made their way towards Moscow, apparently with the aim of overthrowing the Russian government. Yet within hours, Putin had made his own broadcast and Prigozhin had given up and withdrawn into exile in Belarus. The might of Wagner is now apparently being broken up and amalgamated into the Russian army. Just imagine though, if Prigozhin had kept going all the way up the motorway to the capital. In fact, if he had entered Moscow been greeted by crowds and then within days was captured by Putin's forces, subjected to a show trial in the Kremlin and then taken outside the city to be hung from a stake to display his defeat and humiliation for the world to see. The parallels aren't exact, 
but it gives some idea, I think, of what was going on at the first Easter. Jesus didn't roll into Jerusalem with tanks, but on a lowly donkey. And yet just the same, his arrival after a long journey from Galilee represented a similar challenge to the authorities in Jerusalem. And even more than Prigazin, Jesus seemed to be utterly defeated, humiliated, finished, as he was hanged on the Roman cross outside the city. As we read through the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus challenge the Jewish authorities. We follow him on the long journey to Jerusalem that starts in chapter 16 and then reaches the capital in chapter 21 and then slows right down to cover the inside of a week in Jerusalem and reaches his death in chapter 27. It looks for all the world like a local political failed coup attempt. Jesus looks like a failed king of the Jews. Do you remember the notice above Jesus' head at the cross? Back in chapter 27, verse 37, we're told, uh, presumably it was designed to mock him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pilate's guards said the same thing a few verses earlier as they dressed him up in royal robes and put a crown of thorns on his head and bowed down to him, hail the king of the Jews. It's all ironic because it seems so obvious that Jesus' challenge to the Jewish and Roman authorities, his coup attempt, had so utterly failed. It was laughable. He'd been crushed. But Matthew's gospel doesn't end with the crucifixion. We saw on Good Friday that as Jesus died, there were signs of God's judgment on the old Israelite religious system. There was darkness and earthquake and the tearing of the temple curtain that desecrated it, never to be used again. And in verse 54 of chapter 27, the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And then of course the resurrection. It won't be a total surprise if Prigazin makes a comeback. He's only gone to Belarus. We may not have heard the last of him, but Jesus, Jesus was dead and buried. And yet on the third day, as the women went to the tomb, they were met by an angel from heaven. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Jesus' resurrection launches two alternative stories, two narratives or messages as we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the first one fairly briefly. The guards take lives 
to the Jews. The soldiers at the tomb go back into Jerusalem and report all that had happened. They're not ignorant, they knew exactly what had happened, but human blindness is an extraordinary thing. Neither the guards nor the chief priests were willing to consider that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead. It was literally unthinkable to them. And so the chief priests bribed the guards with silver to tell lies about what happened to him. I think we're meant to reflect on the last person who was bribed with silver by the chief priests. It didn't end well for Judas, did it? And so we have an unholy alliance of the Jewish leaders, the corrupt disciple and the Roman soldiers. The soldiers take the silver and do as they're taught. And Matthew tells us this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. You might call it the not great commission. It's deceptive, self-preserving, greedy. It's a dead end for those who cling to Old Testament Jewish religion and deny that it finds its fulfilment in Jesus. This is where it ends. People sometimes ask whether Jewish people believe in the same gods as Christians. And yes, of course, in a sense, we share the Old Testament scriptures and all that they reveal about God. And yet, if you say you follow the Old Testament scriptures and you don't end up with Jesus, the Messiah, you've been completely derailed somewhere along the line. You've ended up in totally the wrong place. It calls into question whether you've really understood and believed the scriptures at all. You're no better off than anyone else who rejects Jesus. That's the first of the two alternative messages, the two commissions that spring from the resurrection. The guards take lies to the Jews. By contrast, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, the disciples take King Jesus to the nations. The guards uh, went back into Jerusalem, but they hadn't realised the divine centre of gravity had already shifted with the tearing of the temple curtain. The 11 disciples, they didn't go into the city, they went to Galilee. As we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, we start to realise the significance of some of the details that we've been told earlier. The first reader, especially if they're from a Jewish background, might get to the end of Matthew's Gospel and only then start to realise that the ingredients for the crucifixion, the resurrection and the Great Commission had been there all along. And we can imagine that first Jewish reader getting to the last chapter and their eyes widening and coming out on stalks and rushing back to go back to the beginning and reread the whole Gospel with fresh eyes. The first thing we notice is the reference to Galilee. In a sense, we could say that Jesus died and rose in order to go to Galilee. Do you realise that? In chapter 26, Jesus had said in verse 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. 
verse 32, but after I am risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Sure enough, on the resurrection morning, what did the angel say? 28 verse 7. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And Jesus himself, verse 10, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Galilee, Galilee, Galilee. What's so special about Galilee? Obviously something important is going to happen there. Well, actually, Matthew had dropped the answer all the way back in chapter 4. At the very start of Jesus' ministry. Let me turn back there. Matthew chapter 4. Because we're tying together the whole of Matthew's Gospel and showing how it leads to the Great Commission, there is a bit of dotting around this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Verse 14. To fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the nations. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Galilee is in the far north of the Jewish territory, in the borderlands with the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish nations. And so Galilee, in a sense, stands for the Gentile nations. Jesus is sometimes insultingly called the Galilean or Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And yet now he embraces that identity as the king of all nations. He meets with the 11 disciples, now missing Judas, of course, who stands for all Jewish people who reject Jesus and take silver for lies and end in destruction. He meets with the 11 in Galilee. And he says in chapter 28, verse 18, if you've still got the page open, have a look down at it. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Four times in the Great Commission, we get the word all. And we're focusing on the first two today. All authority to make disciples of all nations. Two commissions then. The Jewish narrative represents Jesus as a failed local coup leader. Jesus himself says that his death and resurrection establish him with all authority over all nations. Have you grasped the universal scope of Jesus' rule. It's easy to think of Jesus as, as one option among many. 
You might decide to side with Jesus in a similar way that people in Russia might be rooting for Putin or for Prigazin. We might be a Jesus person or a follower of Muhammad or Buddha or some other prophet or deity or maybe a whole bunch of them all at once. But Jesus claims all authority over all peoples. And that means over you and over me. He is the king of the universe. Have you acknowledged his claim over your life? As we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel, we're driven back to the start and we realise that this was hiding in plain sight all along. Matthew is often described as the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and that's true. But right from the very start, Matthew lays a trail to show us that if we really understand the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, we expect the Jewish Messiah to have this universal rule over all nations. Let's go back to the beginning of Matthew to see some of that. Will you turn back, please, to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel? It's page 965. Matthew's Gospel starts in a very Jewish way with an Old Testament-style genealogy, family tree. Matthew 1 verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Jewish king, the son of David. But as we'll see next week, son of Abraham was always a title that meant father of many nations. And that's confirmed by the genealogy itself. It's a Jewish family tree, but Matthew goes out of his way to highlight the Gentile women who were grafted in. You can see in verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Matthew is just dropping Gentile seeds into the very Jewish genealogy. Another key to this family tree is the way that it's framed around the exile of the Israelites out of their promised land, and then the promise towards the end of the chapter of a miracle baby who will be called Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Just a hint that God's presence won't be centred forever around the temple in Jerusalem in Israel, but will be centred on his miracle baby Jesus. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that promise is fulfilled when Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. When we get to chapter 2, we find people asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? But who asks the question? Not Jewish people at all, but magi from the East, Gentiles. In fact, the Jewish leaders of the time conspire against this new king, and they try to kill the insurrection at birth with the massacre of the innocents, an early foretaste of the murderous intentions of those who reject Jesus which reaches its climax at the cross. At the end of chapter 2, we get the first mention of Galilee, as Jesus' family settle in Nazareth, which is less dangerous for them than Jerusalem. From that time on, he's identified as a Nazarene. 
We've already seen in chapter four how Jesus is the great light that has dawned around Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's where he begins to call his disciples. And the clues that, he's, the clues that he has come for all nations, they continue to be dropped like breadcrumbs through the gospel. In chapter eight, as Jesus heals a centurion servant, he says, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. In chapter 12, Isaiah is quoted again as it says of the Messiah to come, in his name the nations will put their hope. Chapter 15, Jesus is accused of breaking the Jewish dietary regulations, one of the key boundary markers of God's people. And straight after that, he gives in to the pleading of a Canaanite woman. And having already fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory, he feeds 4,000 in Gentile um, territory around the Sea of Galilee. By chapter 24, he's explicitly talking about the end times when he says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And when a woman anoints Jesus at Bethany, he says, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So by the time we get to the Great Commission, at the end of our re-reading of Matthew's Gospel, it's no longer such a surprise that Jesus goes to Galilee to tell the disciples that he has all authority over all nations. He's been building up to it all along. We've been working through Matthew's Gospel uh, bit by bit as a church for nearly nine years. Does anyone remember, were you here at the beginning when we, um, when we started Matthew's Gospel, autumn of 2014? I can see a few hands. We get so many people uh, come in and out uh, of an area like this. But look, now that we've got to the end, maybe you'd like to reread Matthew's Gospel in your own time. Remind yourself of the things we've learned and see how it all builds to the Great Commission. Next week, actually, we're going to see that it's not just Matthew who's been building up to this, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Bible to this point has been building up to the Great Commission. And in two weeks' time, we'll think about its role in our own lives as we live out that commission to be disciples that make disciples. For today, though, I just want to finish on that question from earlier. Have you grasped the universal scope of Jesus' rule. We've thought a bit already about his claim over our own lives, but let's think now about the difference this makes as we speak to others. If Jesus has all authority over all nations, there is no one and nowhere that we need permission to speak about him. We might be told that the subject is off limits, it's socially unacceptable, it's a barred topic, and we might in fact decide to hold back to honour our earthly authorities, or because to speak about Jesus at that point would be counterproductive. But he is in fact still in charge. We actually don't need anyone's permission 
to speak about Jesus. Any authority that they have, those who tell us to stop, actually flows from him, whether they acknowledge it or not. If Jesus doesn't have all authority, they have none either. And because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, there's no one who is in principle beyond the reach of his power. We might think that there are groups of people who could never come to King Jesus. The charity Open Doors lists North Korea as the single hardest place in the world to be a Christian. The Open Doors website says, if discovered by the authorities, believers are either sent to labour camps or killed on the spot, and their families will share their fate as well. Christians have absolutely no freedom in North Korea. It is almost impossible for believers to gather or meet to worship. Those who dare to meet must do so in utmost secrecy and at enormous risk. Even owning a Bible is a serious crime and will be severely punished. And yet there are maybe 400,000 Christians in North Korea. Jesus has all authority over all nations, even including North Korea. You might think of other groups closer to home where you just can't imagine people coming to Christ. I remember a while ago cycling along Stepney Way uh, on a Friday and seeing people spilling out of the mosque during Friday prayers and sitting in extended seating across the path in the open air and thinking it's just hopeless to imagine any of them ever becoming Christian. But Jesus has all authority over all nations. Maybe you look at the materialistic successful suited workers in Canary Wharf or over in the city and you just can't imagine that they would ever bow the knee to King Jesus and yet many thousands of them have some are here today maybe you look at the chaotic and broken lives of some of the people who were caught in addiction and destructive lifestyles around us here in Limehouse and think that surely Jesus couldn't save them and yet he does, and some are among us at St Anne's. There is no one beyond his reach and power. This is why he came. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And with that power, he's given us the task of making disciples of all nations. Have you grasped the universal scope of Jesus' rule? Let me lead us in prayer now. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations.
Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the universal scope of Jesus' rule that you always intended and he always knew that he would be king not just of the Jews but of all nations. Please, Lord God, show us afresh his claim on each one of our own lives and please give us that confidence, we pray, that as we share the message of King Jesus with others, that we do so with all the authority of the King of all nations. In Jesus' name we pray.